0: Alright, welcome. Wow, you guys are committed, wandering out in this horrific weather. We're going to have boot hockey afterwards in the parking lot, and then tomorrow night at Huber's. So this is the last class of SLM for the semester. Next Thursday, a reminder, uh Lindsay's group is putting on um, an event, a social event, next Thursday night at 6. And so rather than have an additional class during finals week, we usually try to do something where we just get together, spend some time together, and that's what we're going to do uh, next Thursday at 6. So uh, this will be our last um, class setting for the semester. So I'm going to pray, and then we'll get into... Uh, into it father uh, thank you for the work that you're doing here and uh, father thank you for the way that you're, you're causing us to take a step back and examine things that we've we've held or believed for a long time and and take a look at them and see if this is really the way you feel and the way you think about certain things um, Father, that thank you for a group who is, uh, who's of the maturity that they can, that they can go uh, walk through a process and a journey like this without being put off and without being offended, but is able to be rooted and established in their faith and yet continue to change the way they think as you lead us forward. We love you. We thank you again for this opportunity. Amen. So the goal for this class throughout the year, uh, as we said early on, was we're going to look at the ways that we think about certain Christian things, um, that being uh, social issues, social social justice uh, issues, and um, to kind of really put that to task, I guess, I want to end this semester, since we are in the Christmas season, I want to talk about Jesus, um, because we spent a lot of time talking about issues, and I kind of want to get back to the core. Um, But I want to talk about Jesus, and uh, my title for tonight is Jesus is Different. And what I want to do is I want to look at the ways that Jesus was, as is made manifest in the Gospels, and how that both supports and contradicts many things that we hold to and contest today. And also, how seemingly his own life would almost contradict uh, things that he did, almost contradicted things that he said, and how we misunderstand some things, misperceive some things. So, we're going to talk about how Jesus is different. So, kind of the context that I want to set is that this isn't true, I'm sure, about anyone in here, um, but other people um, tend to see Jesus as kind of a little bit of a, um, how can I say this politely, he's a little bit of a, um, he's a little light in the loafers, um, maybe a little bit like he's very, uh, he's very tender and peaceful and peace-loving. And he wouldn't really hurt anyone or, or you know, rock the boat. He, he really wanted to make everyone feel good. And he just went about doing good. And that's in the scripture, that Jesus went about doing good. And, and so he did. But how we perceive good and how he enacted good are often two different things. And so what I want to take a look at is, to me... We could spend decades, centuries, teaching on this every night. What was Jesus really like? It's the most fascinating topic ever in eternity, past to present. He's the most fascinating man that's ever been. And for me, the reason I want to, I usually try to start and finish this semester talking about Jesus is because if this isn't the driving passion, zeal that we have in life is the knowledge of Jesus, then we're off track. Um, The greatest church in the New Testament times was rebuked for falling away from their first love. So they had gotten, uh, they had done a good job with social issues. You know, we spent a semester kind of looking at social issues, and it's my own chastisement of myself to make sure we don't get off track, but they had gotten off track, and he says, return to your first love. Jesus is to be our premier pursuit. But I think at times when it's day-to-day and and it's simply through the prayer of, you know, Lord, I don't even know what to pray about today. Help me with this. And like, I want to know you, but I'm not seeing how you're revealing yourself. You're not really speaking to me. And it becomes easy to lose track of the fascination of who is this man, Jesus, who is fully God and fully man. So he's different for a lot of reasons. Obviously, he, you know, through him, by him, for him, all things are created. That doesn't apply to any of us. Um, so he's different in a lot of ways. But what I want to look at tonight primarily are the ways that his personality is different than often what we would expect, what we would think at times different than what we would want, and, and very often how he's different from what's presented about him. Uh, Few things frustrate me more than a nominal Christian or a non-Christian writing a dialogue about how Jesus would respond to certain things. And it's presented from an extremely topical understanding of his life or one thing that he said offhandedly like, do not judge. And immediately we're supposed to throw out all things that are confrontational. And so few things frustrate me quite to the same degree as does that, because they're misrepresenting the most exciting, fascinating person who's ever been. And they're steering people away from becoming fascinated with him. And that's, that's frustrating. So what I, what I want to do is, this is in no particular order, it has no particular agenda, I will probably bring up more questions than I answer. That's kind of my intent. Because Jesus is the solution. He, he is the solution to every question. He is to be our chief pursuit, our chief fascination. And so when, when I go through, and there will be some things that are very obvious and are very straightforward and very direct that we can say about him. But there will be many things that they raise questions in our own minds about what was he like. I don't want any person to answer many of those questions for you. You've got to find out from him who are you? Who, who, it's, a, it's like, who do people say that I am? Jesus asked his disciples, who, who do people say that I am? And it was only the one who had found out in pursuit of him that was praised. The others were just giving reports. And so we shouldn't find out who he is from a person, that includes me, but through revelation in pursuit of him. Revelation comes through teaching and through worship and prayer and all these other ways. But when questions arise, rather than go to a person and say, who do you say that he is? Go to him, who do you say that you are? In all of Job's questions of why, it was when he was confronted by the living God that every answer was given. You are, and I repent. So, as questions come up, write them down, go back and visit them with the Lord. You and and him, and ask him to show you, who are you? Show me your glory, like Moses did. So, <clears throat> let me start. Let me start here. A um, little bit out of order in my notes, but I think it's fitting. Jesus is humble. We know this from his birth. He was. Do uh, you guys remember this story? Um, he, he had the most humble beginnings, you know. And I remember going through the Christmas story. <laughs> I watched. Have you guys seen the 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 nativity story? Is that is that the name of the movie? Have you seen this? Holy moly, did I just sob like a baby the first time I saw that? Because I suddenly realized Jesus was born in a stable, which we know. But there were two people in the room when he came. His mom and a man who'd never been intimate with a woman delivering a baby. And I was so floored by this, how trusting God was with his son, with God himself, into the hands of a shaking, trembling 20-something-year-old man who had never been in any kind of intimate situation with a woman before, delivering God upon the earth. Wrecked me. Humility. Jesus entered the earth, the world, in humility, um, and he spent his life in humility. However, um, at one point, the humility that we understand and typically go along with was Jesus speaks of not having a place to lay his head. In other words, he's going about doing all these tremendous things. He had nowhere even to sleep. He's finding a place to curl up and maybe in somebody's house, but he had nothing of his own. So his, he had no presumptions about what I should have as a child of God in regard to wealth. He was extremely, there's a point I'll make later, but he was extraordinarily generous, yet presumed nothing for what he should have. So he had, he had no place to lay his head, and we understand that kind of humility, I think. We have a pretty good grasp on humility when it looks like this. But I'd also say that his humility was, was what enabled him to hear from the Father, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. It was also humility that enabled him to declare that he was the Messiah. Pride does not allow us to receive who we are from our Father. Pride is how we define ourselves to other people, which, if it's in line with what our Father told us about us, it's then humility, as Jesus demonstrates. But pride is our self-definition, of ourselves, and pride is also our self-sufficiency in our dependence upon our strength rather than a dependence upon his strength. So Jesus demonstrates humility by allowing the Father to say about him, behold, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased, and it's humility as well from which Jesus can say, I am the Messiah. Later, we'll point out a couple of other ridiculous quotes that he makes. So Jesus is humble. I think we understand that about him, but I think we misunderstand at times what humility actually means. Jesus is focused. We're going to contradict here. This is going to be fun. You guys are going to be really mad at me by the end of this. So Jesus is extremely focused. From the time he's 12 years old, he, he intentionally gets left behind so he can be about his father's business, teaching in the temple as a 12-year-old. He's focused about his father's business from the time he's a boy. How many 12-year-olds have, have you ever met or heard of who had this kind of focus that they knew where they were going and what they were going to be about, and they set themselves on a course to be about their father's business from the time they were 12? Incredibly focused. He was watching for the time for his entrance onto the, the public stage. He was waiting ready, watching for the time to come. He's focused. Repeatedly, Jesus speaks of being about his father's business. He made it known that the focus of his life was to fulfill the father's purposes for him on the earth, and he was about his father's business. So here's where he's going to contradict that a couple times. He prioritizes people above ministry. He's about his father's business, but he prioritizes people above ministry. How does he do that? Well, we talked about how he handled the thing with children a few weeks ago when there's a healing crusade happening, and a bunch of kids show up, and he throws the crusade on hold for the kids to come and play and sit on his lap. I would, it still messes me up. You guys remember, uh, however, he, he also contradicts this point when Jesus uh, is approached by someone, hey, your, your mother and your brothers are over here. Do you remember what he says? These are my mother and my brothers. These right here who do the will of my father, those are my mother and my brothers. They can wait. You remember what happened with blind Bartimaeus? Jesus is walking along. He's going about his father's business. And suddenly, there's a guy on the side of the road, blind, screaming. He's screaming. He's screaming. And Jesus puts everything on hold. He puts his father's business on hold to go and attend to a broken, desperate man. There's more for that in the future. So he almost contradicts himself. Unless you really get in depth and look at it, what is he really about? We'll get there. Jesus is also extremely zealous. You know what zealous means? He wasn't ho-hum, like he's so often presented. Indifferent. There are all these atrocities going on, and Jesus he's so peaceful that he just. It's cool. Let's just let's just hang out, get along, and we'll talk it about, you know, it's, it's okay. He was zealous. In other words, indifference was the farthest thing from who he was. It's what we would call passion. It's the it's the catchphrase of the day. But Jesus' demonstration of passion was slightly different than what we would often anticipate. Um, One, he's very passionate about his mission and his disciples upholding that mission, that being about his father's business, the establishment of the kingdom and the church, the being the witnesses throughout all the earth. He was very passionate about this. And when Peter tried to distract him from it, we all know what he said to Peter, at least we will in a few minutes when we get there, but he was zealous about staying the course. His passion also came out in a way in which he actually fashioned a whip. This is, this is one of those pictures of Jesus that we often have a really hard time with because it doesn't fit into the um, white-robed, blonde-haired, blue-eyed choir boy that we like to paint him as. Um, I like to, I was telling these guys earlier, I, I like to think that Jesus probably would have really fit in in the, the UP culture. Um, I could probably see him wearing the exact shirt Micah has on. In fact, I told Cody that if Micah and Cody had a child, it probably looked like what Jesus did, kind of. Um, right? I mean, they wouldn't, obviously, because they can't. Um, but... Thank you. Right. Then that could happen. Right. Yes. So be it. (laughs) My point is Jesus defined masculinity. And I think what he's presented as has neutered a great deal of masculinity in our culture. And I think how he's falsely presented has emasculated much of the church and caused men to become timid and weak and impotent. Jesus actually took the time to fashion a whip. And then he attacked a group of people and drove them out of the temple courts. Now, I will just I'm just going to say this because I think we all know it, but if Sunday morning Trevor were to show up and have a fashioned whip and start driving people out of the church, we'd probably have him arrested and we would say without thinking about it this is completely unchristian. And yet, according to what we see in the gospels, he may be entirely in the right in doing something like that. There's a part of Jesus that we don't like to look at. He was chasing people out with a whip, flipping over tables and driving them out of, their father, out of his father's house. That's zeal. That's masculinity that makes us uncomfortable. My next point, Jesus is Tender. Don't you isn't this the most fascinating man? Do you remember at the last supper how he's positioned at the at the dinner? He's parading about in royal garments. No, he's he's reclining and his best friend is laying with his head on his chest. He's tender. I'm telling you, you cannot define him in in pieces and parts. It's, it's all got to be included. This is the part that we seem to be okay with, but I think, if I'm not mistaken, the tenderness of Jesus would make us squirm. Yeah. Right. Oh, yeah. I remember... <laughs> I remember... We had a really powerful night here one night. And uh, wasn't it your head that he was rubbing? Yeah. And the, the, the Lord just moves powerfully. And this kid, extremely conservative, he just goes out in the spirit. It was God. It was nothing else. And when he finally gets up and pulls himself semi back together, he goes and sits in a seat and he sits behind Ryan and he's stroking his hair. For would this go on for 10 minutes? He's just stroking his hair. How many of us, honestly, guys, how many of you guys would be totally comfortable having Ryan come and sit beside you and start stroking your hair? Davey, that's awesome. (laughs) Guys group. (laughs) Oh, man. At the last supper, they were cuddling. I mean, just, just to totally try to be as offensive as, as possible. Because I'm pretty sure that as much as we like the tender side of Jesus, his tenderness would be offensive to us. It's incredible. I mean, he is the definition of manhood. He's the definition of masculinity. So on the, on the one hand, he's able to go into a room, he's flipping tables, he's fashioning a court, he's driving people out in a zealous rage in the next moment he has his head the head of his best friend on his breast security in masculinity leads to the fullness of masculinity Jesus was secure and it allowed him to be zealous and tender how about when his feet were washed by a woman's hair this is totally a no-no in their culture. I mean, no way for, for any woman to do this to a teacher, let alone a woman with a reputation like hers. And yet, he's so tender that he allows her to wash his feet with her hair. Jesus is loving. We know that, right? He left his glory to bring us into ours. Now, he accomplished a lot more than that, but that's a big part of what he did. He fulfilled the Father's will upon the earth. And yet, he made a way for us to be brought into glory along with us, with him. Jesus... Loving in so many different ways, but he heals the sick, whoever were brought to him. Anyone who was sick that was brought to him, it says they were all healed. All of them. If they came for healing, they got healed. with. That's the desperate. The guys that nobody wants to hang out with. That's the part about community that Jesus got the most. Because the people that he picked to draw into his sphere were people that most of us would avoid like the plague. I Honestly, it's the hardest people to be around. This wasn't a kind, nice person that had just been down on their luck in Zacchaeus. This isn't... Somebody who lost their job and their mean landlord kicked him out and so we took him in because they needed it and they're, they're just so sweet. This is like the worst guy in town not because he's a drunk or a pervert but because he's wealthy. He's greedy. He's stolen. I can tell you the name of the guy in Marquette who he's the most like but I'm, I'm not going to. But... This is the guy that everybody goes, Ah, sick. Ah. Yeah. And if something bad befell him, everybody would go, Well, what else do you expect? That's what he had coming. He's the guy that took advantage of every horrible situation that came upon another person and even created some for many. That's what Zacchaeus was. This is the guy that Jesus calls down from a tree because I want to hang out with you. I want you to be a part of my group, Zacchaeus. Whew. I remember, this is kind of a cool story. Um, not story, it's an insight, I guess. Ed um, once told me, uh, if you guys don't know Ed, you should. Um, but he has a, uh, he's a prolific evangelist. And it's this part of Jesus that he, he most uh, exemplifies. Um, There there are many others, but this one is just like this radiant beauty um, about him. And he told me once that he works with a group of people like this, that nobody wants to be around, and that what they got, it was what was coming to them. And so essentially what he told me was he listens to all the counselors and all of the, the aides and the people that are supposed to be helping these people he, he listens to them about who is the hopeless cause. Who's the one that nobody wants to be around, who's given up on, who nobody can help, and, and that's, the, that's the person that Ed then pursues. It's, it's the Zacchaeus. But I'll tell you, to have the courage to truly do that is, is incredible, and it's, it's very difficult. So Jesus, his love was courageous, and it was countercultural. He wasn't loving the people that we would be comfortable loving. Now, I'm going I'm to jump off my notes for just a second. I'm going I'm to make a point. It's okay for you, us, we, to have relationships with people that we can rest with, that we can be at peace with, that we're not having to serve them and take care of them and minister to them and pour out into them. Because it's really easy to, to, to cause ourselves to believe that holy cow, look at all the stuff that Jesus was doing. you got this Zacchaeus guy and Bartimaeus, and I am overwhelmed. Jesus also had John that he could rest with. He had the relationships that he could be at peace with. He had his father, primarily. But it's okay for you to have relationships that do not drain you in any way. They do not tax you in any way. That this relationship is purely for your enjoyment, satisfaction, relaxation, refreshment. It is okay, it is, even, it is appropriate, and it is important that you do. However, we should also have relationships with people that we can't rest around, but they have need of us. Those could be people in the church, they could be unbelievers. And what I'm pointing out here about Zacchaeus is, that group of people shouldn't be limited to the, to the people that are most like us and tax us the least, but rather should span the entire scope of people who so offend us to be around them that it requires every ounce of courage and wherewithal to stay with them because they need what we have and who we know. So that, that's just a little side thing. Don't I don't, I don't mean for you to go, okay, I just got to run like a crazy person and serve, serve, serve. Make sure that you have the friendships where you can be at peace and at rest. And you can get refreshed and it costs you nothing. So Jesus is loving. Jesus is loving. Oh, boy. Okay. Okay. I'm going to start with Jesus' loving through boldness. First, I would say about this, Jesus is more committed to the truth than he is to our feelings. Jesus is more committed to the truth than he is to our feelings. So, Jesus tells Peter that he will deny him. Not because he wanted him to. Do You remember he said, Satan has asked me for you, but I've prayed for you, that your faith would hold firm. Jesus didn't want this to happen to Peter, but Jesus told Peter, this is going to happen to you. Why? Because Peter was walking in his own strength, doing things how he saw fit, rather than the way that Jesus was telling him to do things. So Jesus is more committed to the truth than he is to his own feelings. You remember Peter's reaction? Never me! He is no, I don't like the sounds of that, Lord. But Jesus is more committed to the truth than he is to our feelings. Jesus told Peter also what Peter would be when he allowed the Father to define his call to him. So Peter was also told by Jesus, you will be the foundation of the church. You will be the head of the church that brings the kingdom to the earth. So he's telling Peter both things that Peter couldn't believe about himself both negatively and positively. He's telling them the whole picture. Jesus told Nathaniel also what he'd see if he stayed with him. You think you've seen something special now? You just wait until what you're going to see if you walk with me. Jesus loved boldly. He made ridiculous predictions. I will be raised up on the third day. I'm going to be crucified and I'm going to be raised up after I've been dead for three days. We look back now and we go, we just read through it and we don't stop and think about it. But you're sitting in a room and a man is talking to you and he says, hey guys, I know you think I'm a big deal, but they're going to kill me. What? You can see why Peter, no, never, we'll never let it happen, not to you, Lord. Not only are they going to kill me, but after I've been dead three days, I'm going to get back up out of the ground and I'm going to walk around. He made boldly ridiculous declarations. Why? Because these were things his father had told him he would do and he would be. Jesus was extremely confident that what the father had told him would happen, would happen. He staked his entire life upon what the father had told him. And he lost his life for declaring it. So Jesus showed the boldness that Peter showed But Jesus' boldness was in humility, which meant it was rooted and connected to what the Father has said, rather than, like Peter, what Peter thought. That's the difference between humility and pride, to dependence and self-sufficiency. Jesus' boldness was just as violent, zealous, as was Peter's, but it was rooted in humility and in what the Father had said. Jesus told people that he was the fulfillment of their prayers and their promises. In John 5, 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me. A man is talking to a group of people and he says, you know that prophecy that you've been waiting for for like 600 years? yoo Okay, Martha, grab the kids. He just went over the edge. Statements like that are they're ridiculous. Bold courageous. Jesus believed that people, the disciples could be something great. He believed that the disciples could be something great. Our culture is built upon everyone thinking that they are special. And if it's not special by God's way and by God's word, it's Peter's special. It's Peter's variety of special, which is I'm special because of my strength and my way and I know what I am. And so, when I say that Jesus believed that people could be something great, these were people that knew they could never be anything great. He took the foolish things to shame the wise. Jesus took the people with no qualifications, He took the people who could never make it on their own, He took the people that had been kicked out of rabbinical school, who could, they weren't doing anything of their own accord. They were going to, Maybe catch some fish, but we've seen in the Gospels how good they were at that. They hunt and fish like me. You know, you're just making the contribution to the DNR, buying your licenses. You're not getting anything out of it. This is kind of the disciples. And he picks the guys who are as fruitful in their sportsmanship as me. Can't get anything done. And he's like, I'm going to turn you guys into the ones who are going to be my witnesses, throughout Jerusalem and Judea and even to the ends of the earth. And they're like, dude, we can't even catch fish. We we got the wrong side of the boat and we're the pros. We're going to be the great ones. It's amazing because he was telling a broken group of people that they would change history. And it was entirely... Because that's what God purposed them to do and equipped them to do and told them they would do. Now, if scripture is our indicator, Jesus confronted at least as often as he encouraged. This is the part that's really challenging to me every time I read through the Gospels. You can't find a place where he looks at a disciple and says, I love you. Now, we know he did, right? But if Scripture's our indicator, the only time they found out how much they were loved was in John 17 when he's praying about them knowing that the Father loved them to the same degree that he loved the Son. But if Scripture, if you look through the Gospels, you will realize that Jesus confronted at least as often as he encouraged. You you do not find places in the Gospels where he's, sitting in a room for hours just telling them how wonderful they are. That's difficult for me as a leader when I've spent most of my leadership attempting to encourage and trying to encourage seven times for every one time that I'm going to rebuke or challenge or correct. And it's difficult for me as a leader to say that Jesus is the ultimate leader, he's the ultimate man, and yet there, there's no ratio anywhere like this in the scriptures. What we see is that Jesus told people not what they wanted to hear, but what they needed to hear. So Nicodemus comes to Jesus. You guys remember this? John 3. He's a seeker. He sneaks out at night. Now, if this were me, I'm just telling you, this is honest, me repenting. Um, If this were me, and someone snuck out of their church or their home at night so that they wouldn't be recognized, and they wanted to come ask me questions about the faith, I would probably do everything in my power to convince them that this was the best thing for them. I'd tell them amazing stories. I would tell them how grand it was going to be if they did this, about their future, about how great they were going to be in God. That's how I would handle this situation. When Nicodemus comes to Jesus and he sneaks under the cover of darkness, Jesus tells him, well, if you want to be born of the kingdom, or if you want to be a part of the kingdom, you've got to be born a second time from above. I say, what? You've got to be born a second time from above. If you've not been born of God, then you can't be a part of the kingdom. Nicodemus has no clue what he's talking about. And that's what Jesus told him. Whoa. Right? How many of us would honestly handle an evangelistic situation like this? Not me. How about the rich young ruler? You want to know how I'd handle this one? Rich young ruler shows up, right? This guy, he's, he pulls in in the Lexus. Yeah? He's in the backseat. Right? Car door opens. He's got businesses. He's got buildings. He's a got banks he's got money he comes into the church and he's hanging out and he comes up and he's like hey man kind of thinking about this eternal life thing it sounds pretty cool you know tell me about it my reaction would be boy there's a few there's a few projects we could probably do with this guy tithing around the church let's get him involved what do we need to do let's prophesy over him let's get him up here and we'll prophesy about how glorious it's going to be when he comes to the lord and we're going to try to answer all of his questions. What does Jesus tell him? Go. You see the Lexus that you pulled in? Give it away. Your businesses, walk away. Give your money away. Give it toss it all. And the man leaves very sorrowfully. What kind of evangelistic method is this? This is not our style of Christianity. Jesus, that you're ruining. So, here's a couple of seekers. Jesus doesn't take the apologetics method. That's what is kind of, we seem to take the apologetics method, which is, I'm going to try to answer as many questions of theirs as I can. Jesus doesn't go that route. Jesus goes straight on. He goes to the heart of the issue, and he says it. This is what you need to hear. Do with it what you will. It's a little confusing. The next thing we look at Jesus confronts Mary and Martha, whom we know he loved so deeply about their brother's death. Do you remember this? The woman under the table, remember her? I'll tell you about her in a second. Peter, James, John, Pilate, Caiaphas, and the Pharisees. I have them in a particular order for a particular reason. Each of these Jesus confronted in a very straightforward matter of fact manner I'm not going to say he wasn't mean because when he if you read John uh, Matthew 23 that's mean sorry Matthew 23 is the seven woes you cannot read the seven woes and tell me that's not mean or that this is somehow being presented in a friendly, sweet, kind manner. Okay? So I can't say that he wasn't mean when he confronted. I will tell you, however, that each person he confronted differently. However, each person was confronted in a very straightforward and matter-of-fact manner. Martha and Mary, they just lost their brother. Holy moly. And they come to him, Why didn't you come earlier and save him? They're grieving the loss of their brother that they know Jesus loved. Can any of us imagine going to a funeral and confronting someone at a funeral about the loss of their brother in their grief? He didn't do it harshly, though. He did it gently. And he tells them, I'm the resurrection and the life. I'm the answer. But he chastises them in a gentle way, but in a very straightforward way. And then he goes in and brings her out, Lazarus, back up from the dead, which is sweet. The woman under the table, again, here's a woman that by our definition, oh my goodness, this is the lady that we would run to serve, at least me. She's begging for her daughter's healing. She's, she's asking him, and he tells her, I didn't come for you. This is who I came for. No, please! I didn't come for... And he actually refers to her as a dog. A begging woman asking for her daughter's healing. And he makes the reference that she's an equivalent to a dog. But she won't leave. She won't be offended. And she says, But even the scraps that fall from the master's table will be eaten by the dogs. And he says, you're right. Your faith is healed you. Go your daughters well from this moment. Jesus confronted her, but it was for a purpose. We'll get to the purpose in a second. Peter is next. James and John, they're all in this group. Remember James and John, they want to be the greatest. Jesus, he he rebukes them for how they wanted to be the greatest. Peter, I don't know that anyone got rebuked so harshly as did Peter. How many of you guys have ever had your group leader look at you and tell you that you are the devil? Honestly, if you have, wow. This is how Jesus rebukes Peter. Wow. I've had someone look at me, tell me I was the devil. I don't think they were trying to help me, though, at that time. Jesus rebukes Pilate. Do you remember this? Pilate is questioning Jesus. And Jesus rebukes Pilate for not getting it. And he tells him, You would have no authority if it were not given to you from above. So here's a governmental, unbelieving leader. Jesus rebukes him to his face. Caiaphas does the same. The Pharisees, as we mentioned in Matthew 23. The harder the heart, the more straightforward and mean the rebuke became. The softer the heart, the gentler it was, but still straightforward, still direct. So Jesus confronted each of them in a very straightforward, matter-of-fact manner. And the more self-assured the person was, the more direct and even harsh he would present it. Both disciple and unbeliever alike, Jesus confronts them the same. This is just weird. So why was Jesus so confrontational? Why would he answer Nicodemus and the rich young ruler the way he did. We can understand kind of the rich young ruler, yeah? I mean, his heart was tied to something else, and Jesus was saying, you've got to get rid of this thing that you love more than you love me. We can see that one. But Nicodemus seemingly was a pure seeker and actually, in fact, is, came around in the long run. But it sure wasn't through the round of question and answer that Jesus let him have. Why take this approach? First of all, Jesus valued a repentant heart more than warm feelings. A broken and contrite heart you will not reject. Secondly, Jesus understood that to be born of God was not having your questions answered. It was a supernatural work of the Spirit that comes by revelation. Revelation does not come by answering questions. Revelation comes by declaring the word of the Lord into a spirit where it can come to life. That's what happened to Nicodemus. He didn't get his questions answered. He got revelation. So Jesus was so confrontational because he valued a repentant heart more than warm feelings. This is the part that for me and for most of us, we have a really hard time with. Because the gospel is confrontational to anyone who is not broken. People are born of God upon their acknowledgement of need and their faith that he has saved them. And then revelation takes place and brings new life. We can usually tell how broken we are when God disciplines us by how we respond. Am I offended? Am I indignant? Do I feel like this is just all wrong? Nobody's perfect is not an acknowledgement of wrong. Nobody's perfect is justification for me staying the same. Brokenness, humility, repentance comes when we are made aware of wrongdoing. We acknowledge it, we accept it, we repent of it, and we change it. Jesus required people to be broken and do things on his terms. We see this very clearly at the woman under the table. He's pushing the envelope of her brokenness when he's calling her a dog, and he's telling her, you can't have this. He's wanting to see the measure of desperation and brokenness that she possesses. Imagine Jesus calling you names like this and saying things to you like this. Would you be able to keep pressing toward him for whatever he'll give you? That's the indicator of the measure of the repentance of our heart. And the brokenness in which we walk. For the broken, though, he will do anything. For the broken, the gospel is good news. For the broken, Jesus would do anything. Do you remember Bartimaeus? You know, remember when I screamed really loud earlier? He's screaming on the side of the road, and they're trying to push him away, and they're trying to silence him, and he will not quit, and he's screaming. Son of David, don't pass me by. Son of David, he's screaming out, I'm not going away until you deal with me because I need you. You can't walk by me like the woman under the table. You can't tell me, no, I'm not leaving you no matter what you say to me about me. I'm not going to be offended. This is Bartimaeus. This is the woman under the table. And you know when Bartimaeus was brought to Jesus, what was asked of him? what would you like me to do for you? He didn't just say, I'm going to heal your eyes. He didn't just say, hey, man, let me hook you up with a new house. He asked him, what would you like me to do? Because he trusts the heart of the broken. He said, I want to see. And so he healed him. He purely loved the broken. He didn't have to confront the broken. He could have, and they would have said, you're absolutely right. I've got to change that immediately. And they would. But the broken are able to be built up. The broken are able to be healed and restored. He purely loved the broken, but harshly confronted the unrepentant and the stubborn. If we want to receive Jesus' pure love, be utterly repentant and accept fully anything he says to us about us. Because this is what I've learned about repentance in a repentant heart. When we start out, whether we know it or not, we're hard, we're stubborn. We get convicted and we, mm, uh, I don't want to deal with that right now. Uh, not, no, not, I don't like that. Even when we're broken in repentance and we're convicted, we're still hard and calloused. But as we're broken and led into true repentance, suddenly things stop being confrontational about This is how much of a train wreck you are. And they start being about how glorious he sees us. They start being about, you will be the rock upon which I build my church. You will be the ones whom I send as witnesses to the ends of the earth. And it changes as we grow in brokenness. The message that he's speaking to us goes from needing to confront to needing to build up. And bring confidence in life. Here's a few randoms that I like to throw in just for good measure. Jesus expected people to live and give their best effort. Live with their best effort, give their best effort. You remember when he's hanging out in the garden with the disciples? They fall asleep. It's late at night, man. We've had a really taxing day. We're talking about our best friend. He's going to be crucified. We're waiting for this mob of unruly guys to come and take him away. And he's like, I'm going to go pray. Stay awake and pray with me. And he comes back and they've fallen asleep. Any of you guys ever fall asleep during your prayer times? That's why I don't pray in the car. Just kidding. Um, (laughs) If I can't fall asleep, I usually start to pray and start start to get drowsy and comfortable and And then Jesus shows up and he's like, hey, come on, can't you stay awake? And you see his expectation for those that would walk with him is great. He doesn't set low standards. He expects us to give our best effort. The parable of the talents is another demonstration of this. Jesus also expected gratitude. Remember the parable, the story about the ten lepers? There's ten lepers who are healed They all go off. One comes back. He's like, hey, man, way to go. You know, your your faith has made you well. His gratitude is praised. Where are the other nine? Jesus expects us to respond to him with gratitude. Not, it's about time, chum, hook me up with some more. Gratitude. The nine lepers expected it. Yeah, man, this Jesus guy has been hanging around in our neighborhood for like nine months and finally shows up on our block and heals us. Off we go. One of ten returns with gratitude. I hope that's not like like Dan figured out the percentages with Noah's life. I hope it's not one-tenth of people who have been blessed by God respond with gratitude. But he expects gratitude. He loved faith but despised self-confidence. You know the difference? Talked about it with Peter and Jesus. Self-confidence is, I'm this. I can do this. I'm going to do this. I know who I am. Faith is, I know who God told me I am. I know what God told me I'm going to do. Faith is, I know what God said. Self-confidence is, this is what I'm going to do. And this is how I'm going to have it. Jesus didn't promise wealth, wealth, but gave generously. He thought eternally, but cared presently. So Jesus was turning things to the eternal, but he cared for people's needs in the present. He didn't just tell the, the sick, hey dude, good news, you're going to heaven at the end of the day, so peace, and just walk away. He cared for them in the moment. Those who were starving and hungry, the 5,000, he didn't just say, hey, good news, guys. Like, you know, when you get to heaven, man, it's going to be better food than this. He fed them. So though he saw things eternally and turned the focus to the eternal, he cared for their needs in the present. He cared deeply for the poor, but in caring for them did not make them rich. This one's always interesting to me. He hung out with drunkards, right? He was accused of being a glutton and a drunkard. You guys remember that? Matthew 11. So he hung out with drunkards, but he spoke in Matthew 24 of the wicked servant who would be cut to pieces for hanging out with drunkards. Eh? What's that about? Jesus wasn't hanging out with drunkards without purpose, he wasn't hanging out with them to hang out with them. He was hanging out with them to influence them. And he understood that I can't influence people with whom I have no relationship. So to, to finish, Jesus demonstrated that he had men's best interest in mind and at heart by obviously leaving what he left to come here for our behalf. But he expected people to trust him or have faith. That's what faith is, right? trust god and do things his way when jesus went out from the commencement of his ministry what was his message repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand what does repent mean when he's saying this repent means turn from your way and the way that you are doing things to my way because the kingdom of heaven is at hand when you do things my way the kingdom is made manifest but you've got to change the way you do what you do, and it's got to be my way. He expected people to believe him and in him because he was sent for them, but to be able to save them, they needed to follow him. I think to summarize... We talked about tenderness, we talked about confrontation, we talked about the way he loves, we talked about his zeal, we talked about his masculinity and his violence even. I think Jesus' comment to John the Baptist is the absolute best for us to understand as we pursue him. You know, I remember having a conversation with Ryan at one point, and uh, it was so amazing how he captured... Was in my heart about something. I would, I I would, I would, I'm always afraid to invite people to church. Here, it always concerns me, not so much anymore, but it really used to, because I knew that when they came in here, they were going to be offended. I knew it. it pastor was going to preach about something, or Kurt. Or I would say something dumb. Or somebody, the spirit of God would come on someone and they'd fall over. Or somebody would raise their hands in worship. Or Cody would start dancing. And I'm just like, i just uncomfortable. I didn't want to invite people to church because I knew they were going to be offended by something that would happen when God moved. And Ryan says at one point, you know, I always used to be afraid to invite people to church. And I'd turn around and I'd see someone new here and I'd just go, ah. And then I realized something. There's a rule when you come to Water's Edge that your first time here, God is going to bring up the thing that offends you the most, and that's what the whole day is going to be about. And I'm like, holy crap, he's right. (laughs) Why? Because he's more concerned with presenting truth than he is with not hurting our feelings. And he's more concerned about developing a broken and contrite heart, than he is with making us feel good while we're in his presence. And Jesus' statement to John the Baptist so well captures this. Do you remember the story about John? This is how we'll finish. John is the forerunner to Jesus. He's the first person who's declaring the voice of God in 400 years. Nobody's heard the word of the Lord in 400 years, and all of a sudden, here comes John, and this dude is out there. You talk about offensive. Jesus and John were, in different ways, the most probably offensive people who have ever lived. I I would wager. I mean, it got both of them killed, so I think that's probably a fairly accurate guess. John shows up on the scene, camel hair, he's out in the wilderness, and he's preaching, repent, prepare the way of the Lord, because he's coming next. John is referred to by Jesus as the greatest man born of woman. Obedient to the utmost. Do you remember what happened to John? John decides it's a good idea to confront, essentially, the governor of the day. Hey, man, you can't sleep with your brother's wife. That's sick. What was he thinking? Confronts him, gets arrested... He's in jail, and he sends a message to Jesus. Hey, are you the one who is to come, or should I expect someone else? This is the guy that baptized Jesus. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I'm pretty sure he had a pretty good idea who Jesus was. What is the question? It's not, are you really Jesus? What's the question? The question is, hey, Jesus, cousin, Remember me? Greatest man born of woman. Obedient to the utmost. The forerunner to your arrival. The voice in the wilderness. I'm Isaiah 40, Jesus. Do you remember me? Hey, I know you're you, but I'm in jail. And they're going to cut my head off. Are you going to get me out? Because I've been obedient In everything that I've done. And how does Jesus respond? I've done all these things, but blessed is the man who is not offended because of me. John, I love your obedience. John, I love you. But things aren't going to go the way you thought they would, even though you've been obedient in everything. Things are going to go the way I say they'll go. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. This, as we pursue the most fascinating man who's ever lived, must be our heart position. That we find ourselves unoffended in every circumstance, setting, and scenario of life. That we are unoffended by anything God does. Anything That he does. No matter how he should speak to us, that we would be unoffended and we would push nearer rather than away. That is how we are led from glory to glory. And that is how we will spend with him forever in glory as the disciples all sought to. So we're going to pray, and we're going to have an awesome Christmas break. Father, thank you for your son. Jesus, you are the most fascinating man, being, who has ever been, in in every way. And we, we repent, Father, for the way that we have wrongly viewed you, like like A.W. Tozer said, the most important thing about us is the way we see you. So, Father, I ask that you would open our eyes to see you more truly as you are. Father, even if we capture every morsel of what we touched on tonight, it's a minute speck in the scope of who you really are. But reveal the Son. Holy Spirit, we ask you, reveal Jesus. Reveal Jesus to us that we might know him and know eternal life. Jesus, remove preconceived notions and wrong beliefs that we have about you and about what you're like. And establish in us the reality of who you are. Make yourself known to us. Make yourself known to us, we ask you. Father, I just ask that as we go and we have a break here in the semester and students go home, that there would be a tremendous season of refreshing. God, I ask for students that are going home to be with families, that it would be refreshing and fruitful. That, that they'd find conversations arising which they never anticipated and that they'd find themselves refreshed and rejuvenated upon their return when they, when they start another semester. Father, I ask that um, during this time, it would not just be vacation from you, but vacation with you. And that, that during this time, we would, we would have windows of driving or, or wherever where we're in silence with you. And we're able to gaze upon you and see you as you are. We want to have the encounters that Isaiah had and Ezekiel had and Jeremiah had. We want to see you as you are. And so we ask you, reveal yourself to me. Reveal yourself. We love you. We love you and we thank you. Amen.